Healthcare leaders have a lot to keep track of these days, especially as various dimensions of the Affordable Care Act are rolled out. It's not always simple to knit together the different initiatives or payment reforms, but there is an underlying theme for focusing on avoidable hospital readmissions, meaningful use of electronic health records, patient satisfaction, hospital-acquired conditions, and the nuts and bolts of qualifying to become an Accountable Care Organization, or ACO. What's that underlying theme? Well, it could be called quality and coordination across the system. They're paramount. This isn't just asking something different of people on the front lines of care. It's asking for an entirely new outlook from healthcare administrators and leaders. That's why I decided it's time to check in with IHI's president and CEO on this edition of WIHI. So welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience as a downloadable file via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. I feel really fortunate to have gotten a spot on Maureen Bisignano's schedule. She's been very busy traveling, speaking to, and engaging with many of you, I suspect, who've joined us today. Within weeks of learning about proposed rules for ACOs, the Partnership for Patients, and the implementation plans for value-based purchasing from CMS, this just seemed like a good time to talk about leading across the continuum. So welcome again to WIHI, and a sincere welcome to IHI's President and CEO, Maureen Bisignano. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you, Madge. Thank you, Jesse. And it's so great. Maureen is here with me in the studio. Often my guests are on the phone. And uh, we're going to do. We're going to start off this program by just getting kind of a sense of the room, as it were. Uh, this also uh, provides all of you with some information, can, since you can download the chat at the end of the program. So I have a few questions. That means Jesse will keep the chat open for just the first couple of minutes, okay? And then we'll uh, we'll close it down, as it were, for uh, just a little bit until we open it up again for Q and A. So here's what I'd like to know, just to um, give us an idea of kind of uh, what's going on in your organization. And also, Maureen always says, "Never worry alone." So here's your chance to uh, share share whatever you're worrying about with others. Chat in, okay? You got to actually type in here. What would you say is your healthcare organization's biggest priority right now? What's the biggest priority? And I'll see if I can. Uh, I know I'm, I'm. People are just probably wolfing down lunch. And let me see. Make sure we can see. I can put my. Uh, and as a quick reminder, if everyone could chat to all participants, you can select that from the drop-down menu. Okay. Improving quality, value improvement, patient safety, meaning meeting meaningful use, compliance, safe care is number one priority. What else do we have here? A lot of stuff. Transitions, access improvement, quality and costs, medical home, seamless transitions in care. Transitions, Maureen, I see that as a theme. Planning and anticipating the, whoops, the CMO, CMS 10th, I'm not, oh, scope of work. Now I get it, SOW, patient care. Okay, all right, thank you for those. <laughs> I see everybody, go ahead, keep keep typing. We, we, you can keep going. I'm going to uh, now throw in a new question. You can pile on with this one. What keeps you or your healthcare leader up at night these days? So all these nice aims 
priorities, what's keeping people up at night, what is everyone worried about. Final rule, lack of resources, market share, patient safety, meaningful use. <laughs> oh, these are probably answers to some of the other ones too. Cost of EHR and how to realize, controlling costs, finance, finance, okay. Well, okay, here come the finance folks. Budget and how to prioritize meeting goals for Medicaid money. Several dollar signs. All right, this is good. Dealing with staffing shortage. Okay, thank you all. HCAP scores. All right, those are that's helpful. That all seems within the ballpark of some things. Last question, and this is a yes or this is a yes question or uh, sit tight, and that means use the hand icon if uh, Jesse can remind us where that ends. How many of you would say that the notion of leading across the continuum of care makes sense in your organization or system that you're a part of? Is this language and strategy that you're starting to hear more of? So let's see. So I don't know if you can see Maureen and for anyone on the phone. I'm watching and seeing how many. We've got 85 people say yes. People are still climbing. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, heck yes, somebody said. All right. <laughs> heck yes. <coughs> Excuse me. 88. Oh, but we're kind of, I don't know, we're sort of leveling out here. So let me just tell you all, there are over 500 of you who've gotten on, about 1,200 of you enrolled today. So we got 500, more than 500 to be with us. And actually only, well, that's not bad, but only 100, so fifth said of uh, at least those who can use the computer here, that uh, this notion makes sense. So let's see if we can add to that a little bit today. So thank you very much. All right, we're going to close down the chat and thank you all uh, so much for your early information. All right, so Maureen, you Maureen's here. She's looking at the same screen that I am. Um, Maureen, any surprises? We saw a lot of things, um, kind of the almost like the headline issues of the day. Yeah, I think the one surprise is the um, the number of people who raise safety as a continuing issue. So I, I do want to come back to that. Okay. But I think the um, the challenges are finance and uh, access. I saw a lot of access questions. So for me, um, the answers to achieving stable financial situations and giving better care means that we need to produce some new designs. We really do need to think in a very different way about how we deliver health care. All right. Well, I think that's the theme, and that's what we're going to try and sort of bring. Sort of, We're starting to build. I think we're all in the country right now trying to build this new paradigm. So uh, we see what we're doing here today as kind of part of that process. So, Maureen, let's start off. How would you define care across the continuum? I thought I was being very clever when I said leading across the continuum, but let, let's start with, with care. What do we even mean by that, care across the continuum? Well, I'll talk about uh care across the continuum at two levels. One is at the leadership level, and the other that I think is even more important is at the patient level. So a few weeks ago, I met a patient whose name was Rose, and she told me this. She said that her journey through complex cancer care was, in her words, technically magical. Rose found that her care was scientifically based, evidence-based protocols. Um, it helped her to know when she was in the care system that the physicians and the nurses were helping her to fight off a scary and a potentially lethal cancer. She told me that she loves her doctors and nurses. She even said that she loved her chemotherapy treatments. She even loved her radiation treatments. 
what Rose was scared of was not being in care. She found two things distressing beyond her ability to cope. One, she said, was the gap between people. She said that we don't talk to each other nearly enough and that um, oftentimes she didn't feel as though she was remembered. And and that's a handover problem that I think we need to, to deal with. The second, though, she said, was the gap between care. And she said that we see care as interventional. We see care as um, providing a blood test or a radiation treatment or a chemotherapy treatment. And then she said um, that at the end of all of that, we tell her, okay, it's time for you to go home. You're well or your your, uh, treatment is complete. And she said when she gets home that that's where she finds fear. And she said, put me back together. Put my mind and my spirit and my body back together. And I think that's the challenge that we face in healthcare nowadays, is how do we understand the journey of the patient? How do we begin to see care as a journey on a continuum and not an intervention? Mm -hmm. And I love uh, Antonovsky's view that, um, that really disease is at one end of a continuum and at the other end of the continuum is health ease. And when you think about all of the work that most of us do every day, we're way over on the disease spectrum, and we're not doing enough on the health ease side of things. So I think in thriving in this new environment, and even in in, um, dealing with financial stress, we're going to need to put that whole continuum out in front and help the patient along that journey. So what are some of the, part of what you do, and this is why we uh, can't wait when you go away and come back and uh, kind of find things here, you're really on the prowl for new designs. Um, And in part what you're looking for is you're looking for the really strong examples where people are trying to address the very sorts of things that Rose is talking about. And um, so what are some examples of what you've seen and what you think uh, show promise? Well, you're right. I do have the great fortune to be out in the field and to see what's happening. And it's very heartening. It's very um, encouraging for me to be out there and see physicians and nurses, leaders, changing care designs. And, And then the other great part of my job is that at IHI, we invent new things. So we've got both innovation and research happening here inside IHI, and then the ability to learn from each other and spread the word. But a couple of things. One is um, I, I'm, I, I think there are a couple of folks from North Shore Long Island Jewish um, on the phone, and I wanted to um, use this as an example. Uh, next year, uh, North Shore Long Island Jewish is going to open up a new uh, medical school with uh, Hofstra, University. I think they may actually be opening it this fall. This is that fall, right? that's, that's right. First class. The yes. First class will be this the, fall. Uh-huh. And what I love about this new way of thinking about education is most of the physicians, nurses, pharmacists, other um, clinicians in healthcare are trained within their own profession, and we learn kind of healthcare from the inside out. What I love about North Shore, Long Island, and Hofstra will be that the new medical students who start in the fall, their first three months will be in the field. Their first challenge is to become certified EMTs. So the first patients they meet are going to be in their homes or at their workplaces or out on the street, and they'll be guiding them back into the healthcare system. 
to me, that's a big part of building a bridge across the whole journey of care. They'll be basically starting at the lowest end of the totem pole, learning how to become a C, an EMT from, from other uh, technicians in the field. And so they'll be learning uh, how patients live, what the, what the circumstances are like. And I think that's going to make a huge difference mm -hmm. in the way that they look at care across the journey. I don't imagine that they could... Um, be out in the field, bring an elderly person who lives alone and is is afraid with congestive heart failure in the middle of the night into the hospital and not remember that that journey that is where they started. So that's a great example, and not that long ago we actually had a, a nice WIHI which tried to look at some of these new models uh, around um, health professional training, particularly with some of these new med schools that I think are trying to kind of Im almost embed themselves in the community, mm -hmm. seeing it the way the patient does. You're a large system, you're a large organization, and I think that's part of what a lot of people who are, are joining us today, they weren't invented, they weren't designed for this care across the continuum. So kind of how do you start building that almost from the inside out? So a, a couple of thoughts. One is um, for those of you who are working on the front lines, those of you who are doctors, nurses, clinicians on the front line, I have one uh, uh, offering. And then for leaders, I have another. On the front line, I think that really envisioning what that care looks like is a really helpful way to start. Um, the week after next, I'll be over in Jönköping, Sweden. And there, um, they, uh, oh, I think it was about eight years ago when we started working over there, they um, had a meeting and they brought together uh, clinicians from around the, the county and they um, were trying to talk about this idea of the journey of a patient. And so they really didn't know how to do it, so they invented a patient. They called her Esther. And they said, Esther is 78 years old. She has congestive heart failure. She lives alone. Her two daughters live in Stockholm several um, hours away. And um, so the clinicians around the table were sitting talking about this notion of Esther. And um, someone said to the emergency medical technician, "What? Um, tell us about Esther. And so uh, the, um, the EMT said, well, twice a year, Esther calls me, it's usually in the middle of the night, and she says she can't breathe, and I go and I stabilize her and I give her some oxygen and take her vital signs, and she lives alone, so I don't usually leave her, I bring her to the emergency department. And then um, we said to the EMT, so then what happens? And he said, well, I don't know, I give her to the emergency department. So turn to the emergency department physician and say, okay, well, tell us about Esther. And he says, well, we need to stabilize her and give her some Lasix or whatever, get her um, stable. And she does live alone, and it's the middle of the night, so we'll often admit her. And then what happens? Well, we don't know. We admit her. And then what they begin to see is that um, so much of Esther's interaction with the medical system was dependent on her social circumstances, that is, that she does live alone without her family nearby. And so much of it depended on an effective understanding of her whole journey. And now, when I'm over there in two weeks, um, in the room will be somebody who is Esther. She's still 78. She still has congestive <laughs> heart failure. But they, even all these years later, right. still use her as an example of how to understand the journey. So I would say, if you're on the front line, kind of find an Esther and understand, for an individual patient, what is that journey like? 
and that will help you to understand who you need to talk to and how you can create better handovers. So let's uh, think about leaders now, uh, maybe that example or any others. Um, on my sort of little cheat sheet here of questions for you, I'm so, I've been curious about, uh, I'm sure leaders are almost have, are anxious to figure out what do they need to know? Who should they be, t be talking to? They have a, usually a very set world of uh, who and what they're interacting with. So where do they start to get some of this knowledge? Jesse, want to show a slide? Which one? So, the um, Wordle? Yeah, so uh, I, here's what leaders are telling me. That <laughs> that looks like somebody's <laughs> agenda for the day. <laughs> right. This is what they say their life is like. They yeah. say that, um, if you're looking at the slide, that um, every day it's a new set of initials. It's a new set of initiatives. It's a new uh, kind of um, group in the community that's asking for care that isn't reimbursed un under the current scenario. And and maybe it's that Esther surfaces and they start to see that they really are falling down in understanding Esther's total needs or that Rose needs support and help when she goes home as well as she does when she's sitting in the chemo chair. And what many uh, executives are telling me is that when they look at this kind of uh, agenda, that they feel like strategy is happening to them. Mm. They feel like somebody outside the organization is changing the way that they are structured, changing the way they're paid, changing their business model, and it really doesn't feel great right now to be a healthcare leader trying to find sanity in this morass. So what, what I'm seeing is that leaders are taking a look at that kind of uh, chaos and they're making decisions about should they become an ACO, should they start one or join one, should they move to a patient-centered medical home, but they're finding the answers really in understanding more deeply the patients that they care for. So just like on the front line, I think Esther or Rose gives you the sense of where to go. At the leadership level, I'm seeing leaders really understand the populations that they manage. So if a leader were to understand, as an example, how many people in their community are well elderly, they could then redesign care in the community to keep them well and vital. And it's a whole different way of looking at that population. Today, most um, care for elderly happens in organizations like patient comes into the emergency department or patient will come into a nursing home or be admitted for a procedure, whereas some of the executives that are trying to find their way are saying, well, let me take a look at the demographics in my community, in my city, in my region. And when they understand that they might have 8,000 people in this category, what are they doing to support and help those people stay vital? An example, again, when I go to Sweden in a few weeks' time, I'll be in one room with several hundred healthcare executives, and they will be talking about improvement methods and how to redesign care and innovation in the healthcare system and linking cost and quality and safety. But in the next room, there will be several hundred elderly, and they are running their own PDSA cycles. I wish you could see it. They, they bring their own patient records. They're tracking their hemoglobin levels and their vital signs, and they will sit there and say, I'm going to run a PDSA cycle this week on nutrition or on um, trying to improve my gait. Uh, does anybody want to join me? And all the people who are working on 
um, diet will be in one room and all the people working on learning how to cook more healthily will be in the next room. But there, you can imagine that the healthcare system is supporting that population. Another population, and one of the most frequent um, causes for hospital admission in the United States, is um, in newborn deliveries. It's maternity and newborn care. And um, again, if we took the top five diagnoses for inpatient stays and just said how many patients suffer from these uh, problems or or not in the case of pregnancy, Mm -hmm. there's a joyous procedure for Mm -hmm. the most part, but how many people in my community fall into this category? Let me look at these as the drivers for new designs. And in Alaska, the South Central Foundation, as an example, is starting to look at the number one cause of hospital stays, uh, pregnancy and childbirth, and they've redesigned care for that whole population. They call it the five-year gestation. Now, anybody who's had a baby recently might not like the fact that we're thinking about gestation as lasting for five years, but they think about gestation as from conception until the child is five and really focus not only on getting the child to be incredibly healthy at five, vibrant, self-resilient, healthy and in every way, well-nourished, but they also focus on the mother during those five years because so often the mothers focus on their own health during the pregnancy, the nine months, and then they kind of put the baby ahead of their own health. But when we can focus on that population, we can do a whole lot to improve health and drive down costs. So one of my questions, I want to come back to this point. Uh, By the way, this is WIHI, and you're just uh, having the pleasure of listening to IHI's president and CEO, Maureen Bisignano. I'm Madge Kaplan, host and producer of WIHI. You were saying that a lot of leaders and CEOs, perhaps of hospitals, uh, et cetera, feel like strategy is happening to them. At the same time, we do know that things are changing. The environment is changing. And I think one of the things IHI is always trying to do is sort of provide uh, a sense for people about better ways to do things and kind of the right way to do things or what we hope is a better outcome for patients as well as the realities of how things are changing. So leading across the continuum of care is in some sense an ideal state but it's a reality as well. Uh, if, if any, we were talking earlier about when people put dollar signs in there in survival. Could you speak to that a little bit in terms of? Uh, it, it, there's no wonder people are feeling also a certain amount of pressure. Oh, sure. The reality is very, uh, very clear, and it's here today that we've got to um, begin to make some pretty dramatic changes in the way we deliver health care in the United States. Um, now, I would say that. Um, I think new designs are going to be needed. Um, I think that uh, that is the answer to to uh, providing better care at a lower cost. Obviously, there are always two options. One thing we could do is just cut our expense budgets or cut the number of patients we care for in a certain kind of a, um, a clinic or um, you know eliminate a certain population that we that we care for. I think in the long run, that's not going to meet our mission demands. And I do think from what we're building here at IHI and what I'm seeing in the field, that the answers are out there. So here's one thing leaders are doing. Um, if you take a look at this slide, um, the- This is the chain of effect. Should yeah. we go to that one? Okay, great. Uh-huh. Um, oftentimes what I'm seeing executives, leaders do is they- they start at the bottom of the chain. They, they're focusing on the environment. They're looking at 
financing and regulations and accreditation, and they're saying, where is that pushing me? And many leaders I speak to today, as an example, are considering ACOs or medical homes, even if they decide not to. I think what, what's happening to healthcare in the United States is we're moving in that direction. Now, you might decide not to start or join an ACO, but I see everybody kind of moving in the spirit of an ACO, which means leading across the continuum. I was a hospital CEO some years ago now, um, but when I first became a CEO, when I think back on it, my job was really managing the hospital. It was managing the building and the nurses and the and the clinicians and the physicians and the supplies. It was really focused on managing that business enterprise. And then during my tenure as a CEO, it became much clearer that the CEO also needed to be responsible for quality. And so clinical quality began to be the discussion of the day at morning meetings. Now CEOs are not only managing a very complicated enterprise with lots of technology, not only the clinical aspects of it, but they're managing it across outside of their own organization. They're needing to collaborate in ways in the community that they never have and bring care into the, a system. So what I would say on this setting um, aims slide is that you might be fretting about the environmental context, but it really helps to go up to the patient in the community context and say, what are the needs? What, how many of those healthy elderly do I have now? And if we were to look at healthy elderly and the um, women in the childbearing age, and if we were to look at the hot spots, as Atul Gawande calls them, the 5% of our patients that really drive about 49% of cost, that would give us several chains there, and we could design for those patients that would give us a different sense of how the microsystem should look, a different sense of how we should manage and connect organizations, and then use that to influence the environment as opposed to having the environment drive the design. Thank you so much. Um, we're just about to open things up for chat, and I hope we've sort of laid some really interesting groundwork. I want to ask you, Maureen, one more question. What would you say, um, sort of leaders or perhaps some people who are joining us today who hope to kind of influence uh, kind of this outlook, um, clearly people sort of day needs to change, the daily agenda, the priorities or wherever. Who should leaders start talking with um, to begin to get a handle on, you were talking about getting a picture, how to, how to get these pictures of your community. They need to be talking more to people outside their organizations, public health people, et cetera. Sure. I see um, these kind of uh, collaborations now, uh, very exciting collaborations beginning to evolve at a community level. And in some ways provoked by some of IHI's R&D as we have been looking at community level quality. Um, many times leaders will say, well, I can't influence that by myself. Well, who could you call? And we're seeing groups begin to come together and talk about health. Uh, it could be the local school system, as an example, because so much of a child's health is influenced by their coping skills, their success in school, what they eat there, who they socialize with. Um, so it could be school systems, it could be public health departments. It certainly is hospice, home care, the other kind of uh, caregiving settings. And getting them all into a room and, and 
maybe creating a nester, mm-hmm. or maybe creating a young woman in her childbearing years who doesn't have the kind of financial support that we would hope. How do we begin to understand that patient's needs? And I know that um, we're doing a lot of work with an organization in New York, but now a national organization called Common Ground. They did a similar thing where they looked at one homeless person and they looked at all the different agencies in a community that are responsible for helping that one person. One person, one agency gives them food stamps, another one gives them counseling, another one works with drug addiction or alcohol dependence. And when they put all those resources together, it was a a totally different way to look at what we could offer to that one homeless person. But when the dollars are fragmented and the people are fragmented and we don't have the vision of it, I think um, people get really discouraged about the challenges ahead. Okay, great. All right. Um, I love this notion in a way that uh, sort of choosing an Esther uh, might be a a really wonderful exercise for people to begin to sort of see uh, what's all in our purview here um, that maybe we're not even noticing. So this is WHI. That was Maureen Bizignano. I'm Madge Kaplan. And Jesse, uh, we're going to now uh, open things up for your comments and questions. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. Really appreciate it. And let's uh, find out what's on your mind, and we'll do our best uh, to answer. So, Jesse, you want to remind people about chat. Sure thing, Madge. So the chat room is now open for everybody. Please, when you are chatting, send those messages to all All participants. How could I forget that? (laughs) Please send them to all participants as they come, um, as you're sending them in. So our first question actually comes from Jim Mortimer. He snuck it in there to me. Um, What does IHI recommend hospitals do to connect with patients at different age levels, health statuses, you know, so on, to redesign their care? So how important is the patient voice in this, you know, moving towards this new system? Hey, Jim. Good to hear from you. Um, Critical. I think the patient's voice is critical. And so, um, again, I'm seeing uh, some organizations create kind of an Esther approach, but there are other ways. And I think we don't really understand yet um, all of the needs of the patient. We've been so provider-designed, they'll say, that I think we really need to um, think in a different way. One way that I've been... um, recommending uh, people hear the voice of the patient is to go onto the New York Times. Um, if you go onto the New York Times um, uh, online and then you hit on the health button and then you hit on patient voices, um, you'll see a, a section there that's been developed by a journalist, Karen Barrow. And what she's done is she's picked about 30 different chronic diseases and acute diseases, and she's interviewed four, five, six patients in each disease category. So there are about 230 now patient interviews there. Each one is only three or four minutes long. But if if you go on there and you listen to them, what you will hear is what uh, what you might think of as, as the burden of disease. You, you'll hear that... Um, that people have problems that never come up in a doctor's visit or never get discussed during a hospitalization. I'll give you one example. Um, There's a a section on ALS, um, and if you look on the first uh, patient who's uh, interviewed for ALS, he's talking about 
not only the clinical symptoms that he experienced, but he's talking about how he felt when he was diagnosed. And um, he asked the physician, what happens next? And basically, he said nothing. There was no, it, it was like the clinical symptoms couldn't be managed, so he didn't fit into the care system. And um, now he's talking about the fact that he's got two young children, and he's trying to make a decision about whether or not he should invest in expensive treatments for himself or he should put the money in a college fund for his children. And when you look at these videos, um, some of them are really sad. Some of them are pretty funny. There's another ALS um, patient from Boston who you see wheeling around the wheelchair in his Harvard sweatshirt, but he talks about how frustrating it is to be a Red Sox fan who's going to die of a disease that's named after a New York Yankee, Lou Gehrig's disease, <laughs> and he, um, how, how disheartening that is. But what they do is they give you a picture of the total burden of illness, and I think that's what we miss in the design of healthcare. I was just out at Mayo Clinic yesterday, and my colleagues out at Mayo say, many times there's nothing we can do about the burden of the illness, but we can do a lot to decrease the burden of the treatment. We can redesign the way we care for patients to provide more reliable care across the continuum and to meet many of those needs that we just don't even see right now. Thanks, Maureen. Lots of interesting questions. I'm going to try and group some uh, if I can, and thanks uh, for getting those the link up there for the Patient Voices website on the New York Times um, that Maureen was referencing. So a couple of folks are asking about patient navigators. There's a question also about care managers uh, dealing with transitions. So any sort of thoughts about new models, new types of people to kind of almost hold these realities. I guess historically we always thought maybe social workers did some of that. Um, what, what are your thoughts? Are kind of new new uh, roles and uh, models emerging there too? Yeah, it, it, on the one hand, I feel like um, the need for this is really, it comes from um, the fact that we don't provide care in a team way. And I think, I think we're going to migrate to rather than seeing um, care happen as one-on-one -on -one interactions, we'll start to see care in a team. And somebody on that team will understand the patient's whole journey. I, it may be a care manager, it may be a primary care physician, it may be a nurse, it may be um, somebody who even um, doesn't um, carry a, a medical function. Um, we, when I did some work uh, uh, several years ago with President Clinton's foundation and Partners in Health in Peru, I met a whole group of caregivers. They were the most effective people in getting patients to keep on their multidrug resistant TB drugs, and they were called promotores, and we're starting to see them now in community health centers across, the, the, uh, across our country. But there are lay people who find a job in guiding, coaching, um, helping patients navigate the system. So I, I sense that team will be the number one priority and that we'll start to see new kinds of professionals, so to speak, emerge. Okay, thank you. Uh, <laughs> as you're talking, I love this. People are, are really uh, finding all kinds of new, new things to ask here. This is great. Um, 
So this is an interesting one. Uh, how should leaders encourage their populations to assume more control over their health care system? I mean, or um, I thought actually this person was going to say over their health, but over their health care system. So uh, that's sort of an interesting notion there. Well, especially from David Grayson from <laughs> okay. New Zealand, uh, uh, Kia Ora, um, I um, – I was actually, uh, David, going to talk about the way that the uh, Maori population in New Zealand um, is influencing the design there. And in New Zealand, um, David will know well, uh, the Maori population, the uh, indigenous population, um, often has the same kind of difficulty in accessing the healthcare system that we see here in the United States. You might travel a great distance to get your blood sugar checked and in a, very, in a very brief visit, a 15-minute visit, um, you're given a prescription and told to come back in six weeks or six months. But those kind of interactions aren't leading to better health. So um, the government got together in New Zealand and redesigned healthcare, as David has taught me, in a new program called Fauna Aura, which is family-based care. And so there, the whole family is the unit. And of course, you can see that when one patient is suffering from an acute disease or a chronic condition, that the family unit is going to be really helpful in supporting that patient back to health. So all of the different aspects, behavioral health, dental care, primary care, have all had to redesign themselves around the unit of the family. And there, I think probably, um, David, you lead the way with the Maori population in putting forth a new design that we could all learn from. Okay. Thanks, Maureen. Um, a lot of people are wondering. It's interesting. I think what pe some of these questions reflect that people like the ideas. They still don't. They see a big gap between the vision uh, and how we get there mm -hmm. and sort of what that journey really looks like. Somebody's saying, well, how do we get there if all we've been taught is to worry about one piece of it or one part of it? Uh, how do you get... Uh, uh, leaders who are mostly th used to thinking about their own organizations to be thinking uh, about communities. Um, I mean, these are, are the big questions of the day, but I don't know. You want to take a stab at any of it? Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> so he here's, how I, um, here's how I think about uh, influencing change. Um, I think um, I'll, I'll tell you the, the way I normally think about this is when I'm talking to a group of leaders – I'll know that leaders typically learn in one of three ways. Um, Take notes, no. <laughs> <laughs> so a third of the population in our country uh, typically learns by seeing. Um, they love data. They love statistics. They want everything to be matched to money, charts and graphs. And so I'll often there present some data that shows in your community, and at IHI, we could help you to do this. In your community, we could show you how do you rate relative to other uh, hospital referral regions or communities in the country with respect to cost, population health. And then we could dig into the data to say, in your community, how many well elderly are there? And how many hospitalizations could you avoid? What's the cost of readmissions? And so we could get into data and that will drive a third of the population. You can tell those people because they always say, I see, I see, when you're talking. <laughs> They're the ones who learn visually. And about a third of the population, they don't want to see the data. They'll flip over the charts. They'll look away when you put them up on the overhead. They learn by hearing, 
and they're the ones that always say, I hear you, I hear you. And <laughs> they, um, they need stories. And so they are, I would, I would uh, introduce Rose to them. I would introduce um, a patient who's been on a journey and you can see the flaws in the system through the eyes of the patient. And then the other third of the population learns by doing. They're the ones that will be writing down everything that I say, even though they'll never look at the notes again. But <laughs> it's the act of engaging with the knowledge that helps them to learn. So I would put together a cross-functional team and maybe take an Esther take a patient, maybe a patient who's had a problem and a patient who hasn't, and understand their whole journey. That will inspire some. Then do a little bit of data collection to begin to think, if we extrapolated to the population at large, how many roses exist in our community and what do they need? And then begin to put a small team together to say, could we have a meeting with the other folks in the community, the hospice nurses, the public health people, and just put Esther on the table and say, what do you do? What do you do? And begin to brainstorm about how the system might change. Okay. Thanks a lot. All right. Some things to try. Uh, and um, as um, and we hope, you know, all of you can also share some examples maybe from your own organizations. Somebody is asking it whether or not there um, are unique um, designs or things coming out of the world of safety net hospitals or models or particularly good models uh, that might be effective in that part of our system. Oh, I was just having a conversation with Brent James, who's in the other uh, office here today, about that question. From and, Intermountain, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, actually about safety net. Oh, and, oh, And I okay. do think that the safety net is an inspiring place to look for new uh, designs. They have financial constraints that have been historic. So they tend to think about new designs more readily than an organization that's had plenty of money and hasn't had to force new designs yet. Um, so there are some great examples in community health centers. Um, Clinica Campesina has totally redesigned its physical plant in the way that a patient goes through a visit, made much more efficient and improved patient satisfaction. Um, the Marillac Clinic in Grand Junction, Colorado, takes care of patients who are um, indigent, underserved, even migrant farm workers, who it's really hard to get them to keep coming back. You know, that's the burden of the treatment, keep coming back, coming back. Um, and so what they've done is design a group a visit where uh, traditionally we've used the word group visit to mean a whole bunch of patients with the same disease come in to see one clinician, but they've designed it the other way. They've brought behavioral health, dental clinics, um, primary care into the same building, and when a patient comes in, they can access everything so that all the care that they want and need it will happen in one visit. So I think there are some great models in safety net. Okay. Uh, Terrific. Thank you. Um, somebody asked a question and then answered it. He said, uh, Adam said, how do we wean the health system continuum off our collective reliance on unnecessary use of expensive resources? Answer, increase the share of the cost. And um, I would assume uh, that that's part of the idea behind more bundled payments and sort of more shared risk. Would you agree with that, Maureen? Yeah, and I, I, I think um, the way that we're going to have to deal with this cost question um, is, I, I, I'm seeing Craig Mellon's um, uh, comment there too about lower cost resources. Uh, can you get the patient into home care or keeping them safe at home? 
um, with medication reconciliation. I think over the next 10 years, I would predict that we're going to see a migration to lower cost sites of care so that everybody will kind of figure out where is the, they'll start asking them that location question. Mm -hmm. Could this patient stay at home? We're starting to see ambulatory ICUs, home ICUs, where um, in in the the UK there's a whole push toward what they call virtual wards where the patient stays home, but there's a team of doctors, nurses, pharmacists that meet every day. They go out and do the visits at home. There's a receptionist who's tracking everything. The team looks just like a team in a hospital ward, but the patients are at home. So I'm starting to see this notion of sight and safe transitions being critical. I spent um, two hours with uh, Captain Sullenberger last week in talking about his um, historic landing on the Hudson River. And I just learned so much from him about this notion of handovers and um, the the cultures of safety that I think we need to push. I think in doing that, if we get patients to stay home and we understand safe handovers, we can really then help patients to be in the lowest cost, easiest place for them, most convenient, and drive some of the cost out of the system. Okay, thanks, boy. We've got, oh, look at all these nice pictures of Maureen that if... <laughs> I don't think there is a nice picture of Maureen. No, 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 no. Um, I want to just make a quick mention so I don't forget. uh, ITI has a long track track record, excuse me, working with states, communities, hospitals, and community-based organizations. We've been talking about all of that in some way today. To improve the quality of patient transition and reduce the number of avoidable readmissions. So on July 13th and 14th in Denver, Colorado, there's going to be a timely two-day seminar. It's called Reducing Avoidable Readmissions by Improving Transitions in Care, and we invite you to check that out. Uh, that's Their information is on the website. Um, also wanted to just give Maureen a chance to catch her breath here and have a bit of her uh, Diet Coke. Um, I... Um, some of the so people one one thing I always love about the chat is people do uh, start talking with one another, which is good. What's the best thing you can say right now about electronic health records? Um, you know, we know people are working furiously uh, at one level to kind of um, gain the certification, meaningful use, and put that to good use. Some of the work that we're doing here at IHI is to make sure it's matched with really a kind of good continuum of care agenda. Any sense of um, kind of what are some of the challenges there with that work right now? Yeah, I'm seeing lots of variation in the field about the way that people are approaching this. And again, I'll call on Esther, because I think if we understand the interaction of the patient, we can design a really meaningful electronic record. And if we design it the way that it reflects our own provider-driven care, we're going to end up with little clinical benefit and lots of cost. I'll I'll, um, uh, use the example of Kaiser Permanente. They've got, um, I think, some Kaiser folks on the line here, but they've got probably one of the best electronic systems that I've seen. And um, the, the, the design principle that they used was home is the hub. So the hub of the electronic record is in the home. And that means that the patient, when they go home from a visit, can immediately access all the lab results, all the uh, orders from the visits. They can integrate physician visits across one to the other. 
Um, they can download uh, health advice and, and they can interact on their health issues as well as their sickness issues. But when home is the hub, then the patient can make their own appointments from home. They can uh, orchestrate care. They can email their physician. And I think if that's the, the mindset, we're going to see much better clinical understanding of disease when a patient gets sick, and we're going to see much better control over health. And all of that's going to be, I think, a step toward a better future. If we just make... Um, electronic, the broken systems we've got now, which I, I do still see happening in the field, we're going to end up with a lot of cost and little clinical benefit. Okay, thank you. Um, let's see. I have a, a question I wanted to ask you, um, even as I'm, I'm scouring here, I'm trying to multitask. Um, if you had to say um, what kinds of things, I, I imagine there's a, a certain amount of leader training that needs to happen in this new environment. What are some of the, I, I kept thinking about as I listened to you that you have to be curious. You have got to be curious about perhaps, uh, you know, things that were unseen and things you didn't think, didn't used to be put in front of your, your desk. I um, wonder if you could just sort of speak to what, what are kind of the qualities and skills that might go along with sort of having this broader view. Well, I, I see two things. I see on the one side a new style of leader emerging and then I see new structures emerging. On the style side, again, going back to my um, long ago days when I was a CEO, uh, we were more managerial. We were more um, strategic in that the design of strategy happened in the CEO's office, and then we managed the resources. It was more of a command and control, although that's an overstatement, but it was much more a top-down kind of vision of how you motivated and controlled the quality of care. Um, what's emerging now is, I think, a totally new kind of concept for leadership, which is about curiosity. It's about asking questions, not giving answers. It's about listening to the people on the front line and listening to the patients with authentic interest, because that's where the problems will surface. And that's where the solutions will come from. So there's a different style I see emerging, um, a much more open um, kind of uh, approach to where do I get my information, how do I learn, um, and what does that tell me I should do. On the structural side, I'm seeing um, leaders who are into this uh, redesign effort most effective when they change the way that they work. And that is... One example is uh, what Jim Womack would call a Gemba walk. They're out on the floors actually walking and understanding how care happens with patients. They're understanding what life as a nurse or a physician is like from the front lines. They're not relying on reports, red, green, yellow, dashboards. They're seeing it because there's something very compelling when they're out in the, in the field. Um, when I visit CEOs from other industries, they call that a walk of shame hmm. because they say when they go back to their offices, they feel so compelled to drive improvement across the system. Wow. Um, and then I see a lot more, um, as opposed to formal meetings, I see a lot more structured huddles where everybody has an equal voice. And I guess the, um, the issue for huddles is when, I, when, I, when I'm sitting in on meetings, most listen to the tense that's being used. Most of the talk is looking back. Mm. 
it's reviewing reports, it's reflecting on what happened last month, it's always looking back. In huddles, almost always, the tense is future, it's proactive, it's predictive. And in doing so, we're improving safety and we're understanding how to manage change in a better way. It's what Sully said last week, is that huddles in, in the, you know, in advance of taking off of a plane allow them to communicate much more effectively and to predict what risks, although he did say that he had never practiced um, losing both engines to <laughs> a bird hit because um, that they said they that would never happen. But mm -hmm. uh, they had predicted so many other catastrophes that, that um, they could get through that one. Tom Young wrote, leader as questioner, dot, 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 Socrates. <laughs> <laughs> so via Socrates, find, uh, find an Esther via Socrates. I think there's a lot of really kind of nice uh, ideas here. Um, all right, I'm going to just see if I can find one more question as we're rounding out um, uh, to the top of the hour. I guess I'll, I'll, there was one that I saw that I thought um, is, and thank you for everyone who's uh, added in some resources here. We're going to capture a lot of those as well. Um, for all the talk of primary care, uh, Maureen, as such a critical part of, of this whole thing, uh, somebody did ask, still feels that, you know, providers too are, uh, excuse me, primary care providers often also see the world one patient at a time uh, in a certain sense. Uh, and any thoughts about that at all, about the primary care environment, how that begins to also kind of bend? Sure. I mean, the... Um the issue is we've seen, we've trained primary care to see one patient at a time, 15 minutes at a, at a crack, and, and then to try and solve the world's health problems. And it's really discouraging, I think, when primary care physicians will tell me often that at the end of the day, they may have seen, you know, dozens of patients, but they're not really sure that they've changed anybody's lives. Mm -hmm. And so, again, I see... Um, kind of some things on the horizon that will change the way that primary care gets delivered and I think restore joy to many of those primary care providers. First off, um, I'd say it's about teams, not individuals anymore. And the notion of working in a team is often much more satisfying, especially if they're trained that way. Um, they don't feel totally responsible for the failure of the diabetic to stay in control because they've got uh, nutritionists and exercise physiologists and um, behavioral health specialists all on the team. And I, so I see that the teams will change in composition, and I see that they'll use technology in different ways. Um, I met recently with uh, a physician over at the MIT Physician Media Lab, and he was showing me that he's using technology that all the technology already exists, and it's all very inexpensive, most of it cell phone-based. But he took the two 15-minute visits that he used to give to a diabetic patient in a year. So he said, basically, I have 30 minutes for this patient. And instead of having two 15-minute visits, he uses technology to communicate with the patient. So their blood tests go into their cell phone it comes right to his office, a big part of it is automatically screened, but he can do a quick um, video with his cell phone to say, Madge, great job. Your blood sugar's been in control for seven days now. Keep up the exercise. It takes him 10 seconds, and he sends it off, and you can pick it up at your leisure. Mm -hmm. So we took the 30 minutes and instead spread it out over a year 
in almost constant communication. And again, he's finding much better patient understanding and control. Um, the relationship is much different when it isn't a rushed visit. So I think we'll move away to teams, and I think we'll use technology in a different way. And I think physicians in training will learn this and, and find much more satisfaction in their work. Wow. A physician media lab at MIT. Uh, I shouldn't be surprised, but I didn't know about that. Well, here we go. We rushed. Uh, we, we An hour goes by very fast. And thank you all for the vibrant conversation and your questions and interest. A really big thank you to Maureen Bisignano, IHI's president and CEO. We're thrilled that we could catch up with her. And I hope to do so again before too long. Next up on WIHI on June 9th, uh, same year, 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Interesting program uh, we're going to have with the departing editor-in-chief of the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA. We're going to be talking with Catherine D. DeAngelis, uh, Kathy DeAngelis, sometimes referred to as Dr. D. And uh, that's going to be fascinating as she looks back and looks ahead. Um, she's got some really, really interesting things she's going to be doing at Johns Hopkins when she steps down as of July 1st. So there's information on our website about that right now and I encourage you to check it out don't forget that by tomorrow morning you can check out the audio of today's program as well as some of the resources that got mentioned when you log off the show here today you can download the chat you can download any of the slides all the slides and we do thank you if you don't mind to uh, fill out a brief survey. If you were not connected by computer and only by phone, uh, feel free to email us at info at IHI.org and we'll send you anything that you're looking for. Now, we just have a very, very small little acknowledgement, and that has to do with the fact that WIHI <laughs> is two years old. Uh, two years have whizzed by. I want to thank everyone, all those numbers that are below in terms of on this slide here, how many people have listened and uh, um, or downloaded the program and enrolled in the program. Uh, this wouldn't be possible without all of you. So uh, thank you very much for your interest and engagement. And here are some of the topics uh, that we've covered, quite a few in that period of time. So a two-year happy birthday. Happy to birthday to you, Matt. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> and there's a nice, uh, we have some photos, the people who make WIHI possible. There's the gang, or almost all the gamer. Are we missing Val in there? Yeah, uh, we couldn't get Val. Okay. So we got Jane and Mike and Alan, and uh, there comes Matt, uh, excuse me, Jesse and Vicki, and there's Matt. Okay. That's our crew, uh, along with Val Weber and all of you. And we have some fun music that opens and closes the program. We're kind of stuck on these arrangements by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Sapasoa on piano. So again, thank you all. Really, really appreciate uh, your participation. Thank you for helping us to kind of navigate this brave new world of healthcare. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thank you, Maureen. Thanks our participants today. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. Everyone.